Our scripture reading tonight comes from chapter 4 of Mark's Gospel, starting in verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Drake. Welcome to RUF on this hot October night. It's really strange. Um, <clears throat> before I pray for us and uh, for this time and looking at uh, God's Word together, let me uh, say a, a note kind of by way of intro to this passage and this talk tonight. Um, at, at RUF, one of our kind of core theological beliefs, not our, like everyone in the room, but mine as the campus minister here, is that uh, what we want to do uh, in and through RUF, through large groups, through small groups, and through all the stuff we do, is to hopefully give you the full range of what the Christian life is like. And so that will include times of uh, joy and celebration and just having tons of fun, like on uh, this weekend or different things we do in small groups. They're going to be a lot of fun. Even in a large group, things like this can be a lot of fun sometimes. Um, but we also want to give you an accurate picture that the Christian life is not just like skipping from awesome time to awesome time to awesome time, that there are times of extreme despair and fear and doubt and, uh, and all, all of that in between. And so our songs will reflect that, uh, the teaching will reflect that, um, but hopefully when you walk out of here, it gives you um, a grasp on yeah, that, that actually makes sense of my life because I've been maybe trying to follow Jesus for a long time now and I've known it to be more of the up and down than just like this constant uh, line moving upward. And so I hope that's helpful. I hope that um, as you come and you listen and hear that that would uh, meet you and make sense of your own experience in, uh, in wherever you are. So let me pray for us and then we'll get going. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that uh, it is trustworthy. Uh, because you are trustworthy. Uh, you know all of our minds and our thoughts. You know every one of us in the room. Uh, you know that this passage is really familiar to many of us, but I pray that you would shock us. I pray that you would uh, do something new in our hearts tonight through perhaps this very familiar passage. Help us through our own storms and struggles of life. For those who come tonight just kind of limping in the back door and who are exhausted or depressed or down, anxious, we pray that you would meet them, that you would fill them. For those here who really may not want to be here or those who are filled with unbelief, uh, I, I pray that they would leave asking the same question the disciples asked. Who is this man? And that in turn they would run to you for refuge. Amen. Growing up, uh, I grew up in Duncan, Oklahoma, a small little oil town in southern Oklahoma, and there wasn't a ton to do. 
understatement of the night. So uh, you had to find things to do, and you had to create things to do. So one of the things that I did, and I got really into with my older brother, was fireworks. And um, when I say really into, I mean it was a mild obsession. And so uh, we would spend an obscene amount of money every 4th of July and New Year's on fireworks. Uh, That mild obsession grew into an even deeper obsession with just, like, blowing things up in general. And so that led to us going not to the fireworks store but to the gun shop and just buying canisters of black powder and making our own explosive devices. And that led to July 4th of my sophomore year, after my sophomore year of high school, to me standing in a field outside of town with a bunch of friends from high school, they were standing around a fire, I'm standing about 50 yards off to the side, holding a 10-inch pipe bomb with a 24-inch slow-burning cannon fuse coming out of the side of it that I had made the week before. And I thought it would be really funny and awesome for me to light that pipe bomb over there while the party was happening over here. I thought it would be funny to just kind of jog over them and join them as this exploded over here. So there I was. It's dark 30. I don't know what time it is. But I light this thing, and I take off toward the group of people. And about 45 seconds later, as I'm standing there around the people, they have no idea what's coming. This explosion happens that was not funny, that no one enjoyed, (laughs) and which I kind of got to be very nervous about because in that moment I was just like, Oh, crap, the cops are coming. Like, that was not a cute little thing. That left a hole in the ground, a big hole in the ground, and it did. And, um, you know, as I sat there and waited for it to go off, and then after it went off, I I was utterly paralyzed because of the sheer power of this pipe bomb, uh, which had just gone off. You know, when I read this passage and, and you see what Jesus is doing here, The disciples are, they are freaked out because they had seen Jesus do some amazing things leading up to this. They had seen him uh, heal a paralyzed man. They had seen him heal uh, Peter's mother-in-law. He had healed a leper and cleansed him. He had cast a demon out of another man. But what happened in this story in that boat left them terrified. It left them terrified unable to know what to do with Jesus. And they asked themselves that great question at the end, who is this man that even the wind and the sea obeys him? And as we look at this story tonight, I want us to continue to get this grasp and this picture of Jesus and see That He is Lord of everything. He is in control of everything. And if He is in control of everything, and He was willing to enter into the storm of our lives with us, then that means that we can trust Him in everything. That there is absolutely nothing that is going on in and around you that you cannot trust Him in. And we're going to look at this tonight by checking out uh, three things. Two things about the storm and one thing about Jesus. 
The first is that the storms make us question him. Verse 37 starts out and says that a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat. The, the, the setting here is the Sea of Galilee, which itself is a basin. It's essentially a basin. It sits 700 feet below sea level and it is surrounded by towering cliffs. In fact, on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee is Mount Hermon, which stands at 9,700 feet. So there is a gigantic descent down to the Sea of Galilee. And what would often happen is that winds would come in off of this southwest cliff of the lake, and they would produce these tremendous storms. This was very common. It's even common to this day. But the storms were strongest usually in the afternoon, and so the fishermen would head out in the evening and at night and even into the morning to avoid the storms and the waves. But remember, Jesus had professional fishermen following him. He had called them out from the life of fishing, uh, fishing, and then he invited them to be fishers of men, remember? And so there they are in the boat. Jesus said, hey, let's go across the lake. They said, okay. They get in with him. And so a storm wouldn't have normally scared them. They're used to storms, but there is something about this storm that night that has his disciples terrified. And this isn't the, like, I'm scared, I might make a B on my Physics 2 quiz, or I just flunked my Res 1 test, I know who you are. Uh, this is not like, um, you know, my grass isn't going to grow kind of fear. It's nothing stupid like that, right? This is, like, my life is going to end kind of fear. That everything is falling in around us. I don't think we're going to make it through the night kind of storm. And the disciples turn and wake Jesus up saying, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care that we're dying? You're back there asleep on the cushion in the back of the boat and we are dying. And now, the disciples' situation that night isn't all that unlike some of your situations that you have felt in your life, at times it feels like your world is collapsing around you. It feels uncontrollable. You've given in to to anxiety and anxiety has overcome you. Situations at home have left you perplexed and paralyzed. It is falling in from all sides. And the question that all of us who are seeking to follow God and trust Him have to ask at some point and will ask at some point is, God, don't you care that I'm dying? Don't you care that my life is, sl- is sliding out of control? Do you really love me? I thought you loved me. And the implicit question that is loaded into that statement is this. God, I thought that if you loved me, you would cause things to work out fine around me. Or, I thought that the deal looked like this. If I followed you, then you would cause my circumstances to kind of work out and be okay. And actually, following God, He doesn't promise that for us. He doesn't promise that at all. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot, who is a fantastic writer um, in her own regard, her husband uh, Jim was a missionary, kind of a famous storied missionary to South America. Uh, he died in this um, 
well, this missionary encounter with a, a tribe down there. And Elizabeth tell, Elliot tells a story about visiting uh, North Wales one time. And when she was in northern Wales, she, she saw a shepherd uh, who was dipping a sheep into a pool of disinfectant in order to kill the insects and the parasites and the bacteria and the disease that would have grown in the, uh, in the sheep's wool. And the sheep, they hate this, as she noticed. I mean, they are squirming, they are bleeding, they are struggling to get out of this pool of disinfectant. And as soon as the sheep comes up and it looks like the shepherd is going to let him go, the shepherd takes the head and puts him down in again, all the way over their head, again and again, until the disinfectant has done its work. But here's the thing, that's the very best thing that could be done for those sheep. And she looks up and says this, I wonder what it feels like to think that your shepherd is trying to kill you. I wonder what it feels like to think that your shepherd is trying to kill you. Some of you have wondered that very thing. And if you haven't yet, you will. Because in God's ordering of the world, He has set it up to where He allows and even brings His people into times and seasons of great trial and great suffering because He knows it's best for you. Now, the sheep in the midst of that doesn't think it's best for them. They hate it. They think that the shepherd is trying to kill them. Like we, in the midst of that, we think that God is trying to put us under and do away with us for good. We're sure that He's punishing us for something we did last week or last year, and we know that's why this is happening. But let me ask you this. Is there room in your theology, in your, whether it's official in your study or just kind of implicit by the way you grew up, is there room for a God who would intentionally lead you into difficult seasons and times because He loves you? Because He wants to do what is best for you and to wean you from trusting yourself. He will intentionally lead His people into places where they simply don't know how to make sense of life and they are forced to throw themselves onto Him and say, God, help me. And God does this by design because He loves you. And so Jesus' disciples in that storm are doing this very thing. Don't you care that we are perishing? And to that, Jesus wakes up, He stands up, and He looks at the storm, and He says, peace be still. Literally what He says is, be quiet and stay quiet. And what happens? The winds go calm and the sea goes flat. Because they had heard that voice before. It was the voice that created them in the very beginning. And they knew that He was Lord. And they became flat. They became still. And as much as I'm sure the disciples wanted Jesus to just like go back to sleep, because they're freaked out, go lay your head on the pillow again, and we're going to keep you know, going this way across the ocean. And just as much as you know, when we are brought out of the storm, we want God to kind of just be relegated again to His little comfortable spot over here so we can live our lives. 
you have to know this about Jesus. He won't do that. He won't do that because he's not concerned merely with fixing your circumstances and making your life work. He is after your heart. He is after your allegiance, your motivations, your obedience. He wants you. Because he knows that if all he ever does is fix your circumstances, you will be lulled back into complacency in trying to make life work on your own, and you were never created to do that. So Jesus follows up with them. And he, through this storm, he exposes both their and through our storms, he exposes our unbelief. He exposes our unbelief in him. So it is there after the storm, Jesus turns to them in verse 40, and he rebukes them by asking this question. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Why are you still afraid? Do you still have no faith? And with that rhetorical question, he draws their unbelief out of their hearts and into that wet boat right in front of them. And it's just like, I don't know. I don't know, Jesus. Because you see, the disciples, they were the ones who were supposed to be believing. They had seen him do all the miraculous things. They had been right next to him whenever he had healed people and cast demons out. And here are those very same people who are in the midst of this storm, and they do not believe, and Jesus is calling them out on it. They simply don't believe. And again, we are no different. What happened to them is what happens to us. When the storms are coming in around us, they expose the very fact that we just don't believe this. Most of the time, on a functional personal level, we struggle to actually trust God. All of us. It is hard to believe the gospel. It is hard to believe that Jesus was God and that He walked on the earth. Yes, it is. And what happens is that in the midst of those circumstances for them and the circumstances of our lives that the focus begins to be on our circumstances, and that comes into very clear picture. And whenever our circumstances bear down on us, Jesus in His sovereignty and His Lordship and His goodness fades into the background, and it becomes blurry. You know, like uh, when you've got your phone out and you're trying to take a picture of something, and it keeps focusing on the thing that's right here, but you want to take a picture of the thing back there, and it's annoying, and you're beating the screen. And no matter how hard you try or whatever, it just wants to focus on the thing that's close. That's us in the midst of, of life's storms and when things go hard. It's, it's, that's what we see. That's what we're feeling is all these things happening to me right now. It's my loneliness and wondering if I'll ever be asked out or if I'll ever have the courage to ask a girl out. It's our, it's our grades and it's your career and it's your internship. And it's whether or not you're going to get on essay exec or not. Or it's your sorority or fraternity or... It's me and, and me wondering if you like me and my sermons, or it's you wondering if you like what I'm wearing. And This stuff, it just never stops. Or it's more serious. It is your parents who are getting divorced. Or it is you in your porn addiction. Or it is you with your inability to stop buying clothes, even though they're on sale at Target. Or that great fear of people finding out around me that maybe I'm just not as together as I'm trying to make everyone think that I am. 
Maybe that my efforts of crafting this life that looks good on the outside, maybe that has become the storm for you. And that's what you see so clearly. And in the midst of that stuff, God is in the background. And He is blurry and fuzzy, and you hardly even recognize that He is there. And when we can't see Him clearly, guys, it's hard to trust Him. It's really, really hard to trust Him when we can't even see Him around us. And so like the disciples, we cry out in the midst of this stuff, God, don't you care? So the question is, what do we do in the midst of that unbelief? Where do we go from there? Well, we do what God's people have been doing for thousands of years. And it's simple. It's not profound, but it's simple. Three things that I would suggest that we do. I don't often give lists, but these are the things that God's followers for hundreds and thousands of years have been saying. You go to Scripture. Why? Not to make God like you. Not to make Him impressed with the fact you're reading the Bible. We go to Scripture because we need to be reminded that God is bigger than our circumstances. So we go to places like Numbers 13, right? It's just what you did your quiet time on, the, quiet time on this morning. Because in Numbers 13, what we find is uh, 12 spies who Moses sends out to go and investigate the promised land that God had given them after he brought them out of Egypt. And they come back from their little voyage and their little espionage. And 10 of them come back and they are consumed. All they can think about are the people that they saw and they say they are giants. We will never be able to to destroy them and conquer the land. And two of the twelve come back, Caleb and Joshua, and they say this in Numbers chapter 13. Do not rebel against the Lord, and don't be afraid of the people of the land. We will devour them like bread. They have no protection, and the Lord is with us, so don't be afraid of them. And the story that follows is God's people eventually getting to the promised land And what do they do when they get to Jericho, the very first big city, uh, right at the edge of the promised land? What do they, they go in and wipe them out with their big guns, don't they? No. They walk around the city for seven days, and on the seventh day they walk around seven times, and the walls come down. God delivers them. Or we go to places like 1 Samuel 17 where uh, the Israelite people, the same people, they have become fearful again because the Philistines have this giant named Goliath. And he's huge and he's scary and he's been taunting them forever. And David, who's like the smallest one of you and younger, he comes out and is like, what's the deal? Well, Goliath's over there and you know we can't defeat him. David's like, what? the Lord's with us. And so he gets five stones and he only needs one. He goes out there and drops Goliath it's like, yeah, the Lord's with us. We're going to do this. Or Second Chronicles 22, right? That your other quiet time? Second uh, Chronicles 20, when um, Israel again was facing this huge army. And Jehoshaphat, the leader of them at the time, looks to them. And they, they're outnumbered. They're going to get destroyed. And so what does he tell them to do? He says, we're going to pray, and then we're going to sing. A normal battle strategy. They pray and they sing. And the Lord takes the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Mayunites and they turn on themselves and start killing each other. And they literally stand there and sing and then they pick up the spoil for three days afterward. That is why we read Scripture. Because there is precedent that God is bigger than our circumstances. 
The second thing I want to encourage you to do, again, not rocket science, is to pray. Why do we pray? Because it makes you a good little boy and girl. The third, no, this, the reason that we pray is because it is us coming to God by definition saying, I believe you're there. It's to some degree, I'm talking into the air. I think you're out there. I need help. I am dependent on you for all these reasons. I read in the Word that you say that you're good and that you care, so I'm going to trust you in that. And here's the thing, y'all. I would actually encourage you, if things are going well in your life, I would encourage you to read Scripture and to pray more than you ever have before because it's like going to study abroad. You don't wait until you're over there to learn the language. You prepare now. You take the classes now, you get a French or a Spanish minor or whatever, and then you go over to Paris or to Madrid and you enjoy the country. So when things are good in your life, get to know God. Don't wait until the walls are crushing in, until you're already over there immersed in the deep end of the ocean to wonder, you know, I wonder if, I wonder if God loves me. Because your circumstances are going to be cloudy. You'll be tempted toward unbelief. And thirdly, right there, we surround ourselves with people who can help us focus on Him. You find Christian community. Now look, if I've heard this once, I've heard it 50 times. Uh, Joe Blow, college student, comes to me after three years of being in college, and he's like, you know, I used to believe. I grew up in the church. I used to think God was real, but I don't anymore. And I'll say something like, oh, really? Tell me about that. Did you, like, did, did you go to church, or did you, like, were you part of campus ministry, or did you do anything remotely encouraging, or were you part of a Christian fellowship at all? No, you know, I just really didn't have time to. Okay, like, the Bible actually would tell you as much. That it never intends and sets up a scenario where you can grow and flourish as a believer apart from these normal means of grace in your lives. Word, prayer, fellowship, it's a big deal. A huge deal. And quite frankly, if we don't do them then we're always going to be slave to our circumstances, y'all. You won't have anything pouring in around you to bring you out and to say, no, you, you have to look at God. He's in the midst of that with you. And in fact, He is bigger than that circumstance. He is bigger than that girl breaking up with you or that guy not looking at you or texting you back. I know that's a big deal, right? A really big deal. It is. I'm serious. I don't know why I'm smiling like you're an idiot for believing that. It's It's hard. But if we are focused on Jesus and God is in the foreground, then even in the difficulty we can say like Peter in his second letter in chapter 1, even though we suffer, we are filled with an inexpressible joy. Or James in his first chapter, count it as joy when you experience trials and sufferings. In the storm, Jesus is drawing out our unbelief because He is seeking to draw us magnetically, yes, fearfully, But He is drawing us magnetically to Him and away from ourselves. He is drawing us to Him because He is the Lord of the storm. Verse 41, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey Him? Now look, to understand the full weight of this, we need to understand that in the Bible, the sea often symbolizes what is most chaotic. 
what is most untamable and uncontrollable, the dark powers of evil, which are threatening to destroy God's creation and his people and his plan for moving forth in the world. That is the sea that we find in the Bible. And the imagery is everywhere. In Genesis chapter 1, God brought order to the dark, chaotic, primal sea. It says that the Spirit hovered over the face of the deep. And the word there for deep is the deep sea. It's scary. It's chaotic. In Daniel 8 and Revelation 17, the sea is the place where Leviathan and the monsters are. Right? There's a, it's, a, it's a place of great confusion and chaos and fear. And then when you get to Revelation 21, which is a picture of the end of all things, it says the sea was no more. In the new heavens and the new earth, it's not that there won't be any water. It's that there will be no more darkness, no more fear, no more reason to freak out and be afraid. God will have put it away once and for all. The sea will be no more. The psalmist acknowledged throughout that only God can tame the waters. Only God is Lord over the sea. And so when Jesus shows up here on this Sea of Galilee, and he claims and he stands up and he expresses his ability to control the sea, he isn't just claiming to be awesome, he is claiming to be God. He's saying, even the sea obeys me because I created it. And so the disciples were scared before while they were in the storm. And now it says they are terrified. Literally translated there, it says they feared with a great fear. It just puts the word next to each other twice in a row. They phobiazomai with their phobia. Like they were fear, fear, fear. They were scared. They were freaked out. (laughs) There's your Greek lesson for the week. Um, Because here's the thing. The storm is powerful and scary. Yes. But Jesus just calmed the storm. And if the storm was uncontrollable, what does that say about Jesus, the one who just spoke words and the storm went silent? What it says about him is that he is absolutely uncontrollable. He is absolutely sovereign and powerful. And that freaks you out. And this is why. One of the hardest things about any of us trusting Jesus, whether you have or whether you're considering it or whether you're on the outside looking at whatever, one of the hardest things about ever trusting Jesus is handing him our cute, little, well-put-together, overly-thought-out life plan and saying, I'm trusting you with this. Some of you are self-admitted control freaks, and others of you are in denial. We all hate the idea of letting go of our own plan and our own desire to make our life work, don't we? It is terrifying. Because what if Jesus makes me be a missionary? Like, what if Jesus makes me break up with that guy because it's for my good? Or what if Jesus doesn't want me to be a petroleum engineer, instead he wants me to be a teacher? I won't make all the money then, that's scary. Jesus calls you right into the midst of that and says you are to trust Him and He's uncontrollable. But here's the thing. Let me press you on that. Here are the options. 
You either trust him who is uncontrollable from our vantage point, but who is utterly unchanging and sovereign and powerful, but also he's in the boat with you, and so he's loving and he's good and he's kind and he came to serve, but he is uncontrollable and scary. Or you do what I think is infinitely more scary. You trust yourself and your plans to set out on this voyage called your life, and you trust you and no one else. Right? The same you that is woefully insecure about everything in your world, who if you get looked at the wrong way by someone, you melt in a puddle of fear and insecurity. The you who changes from day to day to day, are you really wanting to put all of your hopes and dreams at making your life work into that? That's terrifying. That's scarier than trusting Jesus, I would submit to you. Or are you going to take your scared, weak, baby, barely faith and walk out onto the thick ice of God and His love for you and trust that it will hold you? Or will you take your resolute, absolute confidence and faith in yourself and your ability to make your life work and walk out onto that thin ice and just know it's going to work? In this passage, we see that Jesus is saying, I am the thickest ice you can imagine. Your faith isn't good because of how much of it you have. Your faith is made good because of who it's in. It's not the quantity of your faith, it's the object of your faith that saves you. I'll close with this illustration. In Brian Chappell's book, Brian Chappell is an old seminary president up in St. Louis. Uh, he's now a pastor near St. Louis. <clears throat> he tells a story about uh, something that happened in his hometown, which was tragic. Um, the story was about two brothers who, one day after school, they decided to play on the sandbanks of the Mississippi River. Um, and so, excuse me, um, the sandbanks and the river was a huge uh, point of... of uh, commerce and trade, and so often the big river drudges would come up, or the, uh, the river boats would come and drudge the river, and they would dump the sand on the sides of the banks, and they would form these giant sand hills. And there was nothing more fun, as you can imagine, for two little boys and probably tons of little girls, than to, than to go up on these sand hills and play for hours on end. But here's the thing. That because when the boats would dump the sand on the side of the river, it was so wet, when the sand would start to dry, the, the escaping water would go out the bottom and it would leave these voids underneath the shell of the sand. And so often the sand would give way and it would collapse and fall in on itself. Well, that's exactly what happened with these two little boys. They were out playing and they went up to the higher, uh, to the, the higher sand hill and it collapsed on them. And when their parents noticed they didn't have come home for dinner, they sent out this giant manhunt to search for them. And eventually they came to the sand hills. And they found the younger brother only. And he was actually um, collapsed. The sand had collapsed around him and it was up to his shoulders. And he was unconscious because of the pressure and the weight that it was putting on his body. And so the, the rescuers, they, they went to dig him out, and they threw sand off, and they kept going, kept going, until they got to around his waist, and he came back too. And he, he was back conscious, and they said, Where is your brother? 
And he said, I'm standing on his shoulders. With the sacrifice of his own life, the older brother saved his younger son, his younger brother. Friends, Jesus is the older brother. That story is the gospel. We're the younger brother. And we have climbed onto his shoulders, his strong shoulders which can support us. And you can trust him tonight with whatever you bring into this room or whatever you leave this room and walk into because he is the one who looked willingly and went willingly into the face of the scariest storm that this world has ever known on the cross in the storm and the wind and the waves and the torrent and the punishment of God's wrath on sin. Jesus walked willingly into that storm for you. And He invites you to come rest on His shoulders. And so I don't know where you are with Jesus. I don't. But I would encourage you. I would beg you. I would implore you to take whatever is going on in your life and go to Him and say, what are you going to do with this? And he will say, I will be with you in the midst of it. Come with me. I care for you. I love you. Let's do this. That's the gospel. That is what Jesus offers you. You can trust him. Let's pray together.